Father, thank you for the promises of your word. When we read such things as your mercies are new every morning, that you cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. And something as beautiful as Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate alongside us, helping us, praying for us, caring for us, paving the way to a greater fellowship with you. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you that he makes us clean before you. Please bless our time in the word. Illuminate it to our understanding. And please, God, help me desperately. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Before we start, I want to apologize for last week. I made a comment about that the prayer team can be used as a gossip line. And by no means do I ever want that to be misconstrued that I was speaking of the prayer chain that we have here at this church. I've not known anybody to ever employ it in that way. My point of my comment was to say that prayer lines are very much in the danger of becoming that and warning against it. And so if if, uh, my jesting in that manner offended you personally, I apologize for that. I think that's important. Does everybody have a, a Bible? Yes? Everybody got pens? I only have one to throw at you today. Okay. Everybody got notes? You need to humor me this morning and and take notes. Okay. Or or have your notes. If you notice, you've got seven and a half pages of notes. And I already have two and a half pages for next week. Just so you know. Uh, Because I was originally trying to get what we're talking about today accomplished in one Sunday, and and probably about Thursday I realized that's impossible. So that's why I was, I didn't finish these until yesterday at 3.30. So help me help you, right? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Good deal. Uh, Wisconsin's weird. That's how we'll start. And the reason is, is because you guys have some strange laws. I don't know if you're aware of some of the laws. Uh, Jamie shared with me, hey, here's a, here's a website that talks about some of the strange laws that our state has. Mitch, do you have those up? We ready for that? Here's law number one I thought was interesting. From 1925 to 1967, you could not serve margarine in Wisconsin. You can't buy colored? Is there a color other than yellow? I had no idea that spread theology was such a big deal here. <laughs> Good grief. If I bring in a tub of butter, we might have revival. I'm not for sure. Number two. In 1957, the livestock were given the right of way. Absolutely. You guys, I guess you guys say it like it's normal. I'm originally from Kentucky. That's not normal. I don't know what you guys have up on me there. Let's go to the next one. Number three. All businesses must base their times on central standard time. Okay. Number four. All Wisconsin cheese must be highly pleasing. And here's the amazing thing, if you, if you take that and you research some of that stuff, it's never defined what highly pleasing means. There's just a lot of listing of this better be highly pleasing. 
Which tells me that you're a people that appreciate quality, and I like that, right? <laughs> How about the last one here that we found? Adultery became illegal in Wisconsin, 1849. Subject. <laughs> okay. To a, that's probably my fault. That's okay. To a $10,000 fine and up to three years in prison. That was, 1849 was actually the year after Wisconsin was made a state. So it's interesting. One year after, it was necessary for them to make this law. In fact, that's the idea. All laws came into being because they were necessary at some point. Somebody did something that made it necessary. Now, I had a conversation with Jamie and Mitch last night about some of the more colorful laws that we found for individual towns in Wisconsin. You should see some of those. I couldn't put them on the board because we would all blush and need to pray and go home. (laughs) Which some of you would have said, praise the Lord, right? But they were not appropriate for this setting, I promise you. And they're so odd that you really, in a very carnal sort of way, want to know what was the backstory that led to that law. It's sketchy. Anyway, Laws come up for a reason. They have to be instituted for a reason. And regardless of what maybe our perspective is about it, are about it, perspectives, laws are not bad things. In fact, this is something that Paul expounds upon in Romans 6 and 7. The law is not bad. The law of God given to Israel is the written perfection of the Lord. What does it look like if perfection were put down on paper for people to read? If you ever want to read something that is perfect and without flaw, you don't get any further than the Ten Commandments. The problem with the law is the inability of the flesh to keep it. That's the problem. How many of you have ever heard the law is bad? It's evil, it's wrong. Nobody's ever heard that? We don't have that problem then, praise the Lord. Okay, now not Wisconsin law. I'm talking about the law that was given to Israel. Anybody ever heard that? No? Okay, some of you still want me to talk about butter and margarine. That's okay. But I do want to point out some interesting things to you. The very first thing I think we need to get to get our bearings here is in Exodus 4. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 4. We're going back a little bit, but the Lord makes a statement that is paramount for us to understand. Chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 22. He's speaking to Moses before Moses ever goes before Pharaoh. And he makes a statement about Israel that needs to be Uh, embraced so that we understand the law walking into it. Look at chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh. Now watch this. Israel is my son, my firstborn. There is a familial relationship. God has accepted Israel as a child. This is important. And notice that he has them as his child before any of the declarations to let them go have been given, before any of the plagues have been exercised upon the gods of Egypt to disarm them and show how ineffective they are to help the Egyptians. 
before there had been any problem of a questioning of who is this Yahweh person that we're supposed to listen to. None of that. Before any of this altercation took place, God set a foundational point. Israel is mine. I am their God. I am their father, which is highly interesting because in New Testament, it's nothing unusual for us to read through and see prayers and find that Jesus and Paul and everybody calls God, Yahweh, their father. Right? We even learned that from how Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, right? Our father who is in heaven. We, we understand that. What's interesting is, is that in the, New, in the Old Testament, only David is found to call Yahweh father. That's it. Which explains a lot about what his intimate relationship with Yahweh looked like. So when we start this, we have this understanding of, they are my son, my firstborn. Now, if you would, turn over to chapter 19. When you deal with the song of Moses that is given, the praise, remember, worship consists of two things, who God is and what he has done. Then in the chapters between 15 and 19, you have four instances where the children of Israel are traveling and they are following the presence of God in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. And there are four separate, I'm filling in the, the gap for you here, just so you know. The four separate instances that they have is that there is grumbling and complaining that is brought against Moses. And if you want to read those chapters, 16, 17, 18, I encourage you to do so. In that Moses warns them, realize you're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against Yahweh who has set you free from slavery. So you should think twice about this. Here's the interesting thing. Yahweh never chastens them for their grumbling, for their complaining. Now that's not how we work, is it? We got a child and we're like, okay, enough. Enough. I want water. You've done drank six gallons of water. This bed is going to be soaked by morning. Go to sleep, right? That kind of thing. And our patience runs out quick. In these four instances, you never see Yahweh chasing them. He doesn't discipline them or anything. Why is that? Because they're a brand new nation that has been set flee, flee, free from polytheistic slavery. Not only were they oppressed, but they were met on every side by a different God. Even though they were planted in the land of Goshen, which was the best land that Egypt had to offer, and even though that served as some sort of buffer to isolate them or to insulate them from the influences of this pagan society, by their work and by just the usual day-to-day, -day, eventually it started to develop traces within the society of Israel of polytheism, idolatry, going after other gods. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this problem plagues them all the way to the captivity of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon. It's what eventually drug them down before the Lord. 
and in his love for them and in holding to his promises to them, which occur later on in Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy, you find that he does chasten them. He spanks them and he removes them from their land. You will now wonder if other gods is what you want, then you are not purifying yourself and being wholly devoted like we agreed when I gave you my law. And so therefore you are not in the land. Now I want to show you something interesting. What we're going to look through, and we're going to praise the Lord that the time that I have is the time efficient to get it done, right? Okay. Is everybody feeling good this morning? I know we're really, it's really eight something. I get it, right? I mean, the clock back there hasn't changed, so I'm like, man, technically I got all kinds. I got an extra hour to preach today. I mean, if we just want to be online with it, that's good. And I will take advantage of that. So just so you know, just kidding. So chapter 19, verse 1, pay attention to what's going on here, timing. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, probably not how you say it, but I'm trying, uh, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now, what mountain are we talking about? Understand this. The wilderness area that they are in geographically is Sinai, okay? The mount where they are camped in front of is actually the mount known as Horeb. And the reason why that is important is because it is the exact same mountain that Moses came upon a bush that was burning but not consumed where he was told to remove his shoes and he bowed down before the Lord and the Lord commissioned him to go and be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh because he was going to liberate his children. Everybody remember that instance? Okay, good. Remember he gave lots of reasons why he shouldn't go, right? Well, notice here he is on the other side of it now. And he brings him back to this mountain. In fact, it was a promise given to God. It will be a sign for you when you bring the children back to this mountain to worship me. Notice God fulfilling his promises right before Moses' eyes. So verse 3, Moses went up to God and Yahweh called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Understand that it is not egotistical for God to draw attention to his mighty works. And here is the reason why. God is so beyond what we can possibly comprehend that remember, it's who he is, his attributes, and what he has done, liberating them from Egypt, that gives us some sort of frame of reference to be able to understand him. Now think about it at the end of 2 Corinthians. It says that Paul, and Paul's he's modest about it. I know a man that was caught up, right, to the third heaven, not to the sky and not to the space or universe that we see, but up into the very presence of God. And he says, I've seen things that are inexpressible to you. If Paul was given a paper and pen to try to write down what he saw around the throne of God firsthand, he still could not do it. In fact, if you read John's account, of who God is in Revelation 4 and the worship that he sees go on spanning into Revelation 5. He is still struggling 
to try to describe who God is. Ezekiel chapter 1. I just sit there and scratch my head and say, praise the Lord. I don't know. Anybody read Ezekiel 1 lately? Right? Good grief. What is going on? It's Charlie Brown theology right there. Good grief. I don't know. But man, it's awesome. But there is a struggle. What's that? Even the commentators are confused about Ezekiel and salvation as far as I'm concerned. But that's another story. That little jab. (laughs) Moving on. But whenever we talk about who is God, these references, him referring to himself is communicating to them an event in history that they can mark to always come back to. Up until this time, we often see him unfolding himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he does that, he is drawing attention to the promises that he made to them that are unconditional in nature. But now, such an event has taken place that has shattered a world superpower and has liberated a poor little nothing people and led them out to complete freedom to where they don't even have the security and comfort of slavery to rely on anymore, that he is constantly bringing to their mind, I am the one who set you free from oppression, is the idea. Now, hopefully you can relate to that as God being the one who has set us free from the oppression of sin. I hope you gravitate towards that. So he says here, verse 5, Now then, if, everybody got your pen? If. If, write a little heavy, bold squiggle underneath that. Notice it's contingent. If, which means you can or you don't have to. It's up to you. Now watch what happens. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. That idea there is something that we saw a while back when we talked about Yahweh's affection for Israel. My special treasure, my treasured possession is the idea. Him holding them in high regard as, as somebody would maybe hold a, hold a priceless piece of jewelry in their hand uh, and, and just go gaga over it is kind of what it is. But notice, shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. So notice, Yahweh owns everything, but even though he owns everything, he is giving Israel the opportunity to be in a place of special privilege. Caffeinated crowd said amen, right? Making sure you're still with me. I can tell, man. Hopefully nobody was foolish enough to drink decaf this morning. All right. Verse 6, and you shall be to me, now notice, not only are they his son, not only are they his firstborn not only are they a special treasure or a treasured possession but you shall be if you agree to this a kingdom of priests and a holy nation a set apart people is the idea you're going to be different from the rest of the world now there's a reason for this we're going to talk about it here in just a second now watch this these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of israel So Moses came and called the elders of the people. Why is that important? How come he didn't get everybody together? Why does he go to the elders of the people? Because they're the leaders, and leaders do what? They lead. That's exactly what they do. If they don't lead, they don't need to be leaders. So notice, 
All the elders are gathered up and he communicates to those who have the responsibility and charge to communicate to their people. I've met with the Lord and here's what he says. Now, ask your people if they want to be involved in this and I will return with your answer to him. Notice that Moses is is acting as a mediator in this situation. He is an intercessor in this situation. Now, why is this important? If you will agree to this, here are the benefits that will happen to you, Israel. Now, so notice, he meets with the elders of the people and set before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Does anybody have a problem with that? Moses talks to the elders. Elders talk to the people. The people say, yeah. They tell the elders. The elder tells Moses. Anybody know a problem with that? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They didn't do it. Yeah, but we're looking in the future. We don't. Technically, we're sitting here on the sidelines in the stands watching what's going on. We're not there yet. But yes, you're correct. The rest of the Old Testament testifies to one big thing. They didn't do it. Exactly. Nobody agrees with everything all the time. Have there been any terms set forward of what exactly they're agreeing to? No. They just know that the benefit's coming out. How many of you have said, you know what? I don't even want to read my mortgage. Just tell me where to sign. (laughs) Anybody done that? (laughs) Who did that? (laughs) Did it work out well? Okay. You don't do that. That's what we're getting at. That's not the way to handle a business agreement. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. If they don't know the terms and conditions that have been put forward, but Yahweh is clearly communicating to them, if you want to do this, if you will obey my voice, which means essentially, if you want to obey what I'm getting ready to ask of you, is the idea. Now, They don't know what that is yet, but let me ask you a question. Knowing who God is and what they've seen firsthand, do you think maybe they had a moment of clarity about the benefits associated with this? You will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. I mean, it sounds like a really good agreement. Not only that, but remember how he started it. I set you free from all that. I am greater than Pharaoh, who was considered to be God on earth. I am greater than he is. Can you see where maybe Israel would have looked at this and said, you know what, with Yahweh, we don't have anything to lose. I can can rationalize it in that way. I can see it in that way. The benefits of being in close, personal, intimate relationship with him are worth it. And whatever he asks, here's the thing, if he's consistent in his character like we talk about, whatever he asks has got to be the right thing to do, isn't it? Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad we agree. So that's good. So notice, and Moses brought back the words of the people to Yahweh. Verse 9, Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that, here's the reason why he's going to do this, the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. 
Now, this is important. This may not seem like a big deal. If you were just reading over this, doing daily devotions or something like that, you might not latch on to this. But what Yahweh is getting ready to do is a pivotal moment in Old Testament history. And it is brought up again in Deuteronomy 4. If you're here in the Deuteronomy class, you know that we've hammered this over and over and over of what God is getting ready to do here. So notice he says, then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses, he's going to come and visit with them. They're going to hear God speak. And the reason is, is because God wants to leave an impression on them so they never live the same way they ever lived again. Verse 10, Yahweh also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow for two days and let them wash their garments. Now pause. No one knows what it means for them to consecrate themselves. And here's the reason why. They don't have a law yet. They don't have any standard. They don't have any instructions that have been given to them about what the definer of right and wrong has to say about their living relationship as a people. They don't have that yet. So whatever consecrate means, I don't know. Could it be that maybe they had to eat leavened bread only for the next couple of days? Maybe, possibly, but we're not for sure. The idea of washing their garments, we get that because we do that today, right? And that symbolizes cleanliness and purity. The idea is get the dirty out, okay? So we get that, which tells you that they have some sort of moral understanding amongst themselves of, am I doing anything messed up right now? If that's the case, I need to forsake that because we're getting ready to meet with God. So everybody's got two days to get ready because on the third day, he's going to meet. Now look at verse 11. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now stop there. God is going to come down. This idea of God coming down is where we get from the Old Testament the idea of grace. It is the idea of someone of a higher caliber stooping themselves down in such a way as to communicate. In fact, even pagan professors and scholars of Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern times have said, in all of the panorama of gods and beliefs and peoples and countries and religious systems that we've ever seen, there has never been anyone like the God of the Hebrews, who actually comes down to meet with his people. See, Yahweh is completely other than what has been formulated. And this should tell us something. Remember what was behind the idols in Egypt. It wasn't just that they were wood and stone, they were what? Does anybody remember? You can say it, it's not going to hurt you. Demons. Demons invoking these people to pagan worship. Invoking darkness in this whole idea. In fact, I want to share this with you. You've got it in your notes down at the bottom. This book right here, Everlasting Dominion by Eugene Merrill, it's probably one of the best books on the Old Testament I've ever read. And here's the reason why, is because it's not just a straight-up commentary of his opinions. He talks about the cultural surroundings of what Israel would have been dealing with at that time and the customs that they developed. If you're ever looking for something to help you in the Old Testament, and it's a real easy read. This is an incredible book. It is an incredible book. It is well worth the $29.84 or whatever it costs on Amazon. If you got Prime, ding, 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 good job, right? You get a little bit quicker and cheaper, so that's good. But if you want, if you want an amazing book on the Old Testament, I haven't found anything better than that book. It's incredible. 
The idea here that we're dealing with is holiness. God is teaching them what it is to meet with him, what it is to come before his presence, what it is to stand before his eyes. Look what he does here in verse 12. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Taken out with arrows is the idea. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people. Again, we don't know what that is. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Why? Because you know the woman's going to mess it up. That's why. Okay, you're all paying attention. Praise God. Good, good. Good. That's not what that means, is it? No, it means don't be involved in having sexual relations during this time. Abstain. Now pause for a second. Can you think of anything? Did you just now get it? Okay, it took him a while. He's like, oh, I got that. That's good. (laughs) we love everybody so can anybody think of anything in the new testament where it talks about the only reason given why somebody should abstain from sexual relations the only reason what to devote yourselves to prayer and as i said in the new testament devote yourselves to prayer it has to be a mutual agreement see see, man now i'm starting to talk about sex i got everybody's eyes on me good job guys (laughs) If it's not coffee, it'll wake you up. I'll just throw this word out there, and all of a sudden, everybody becomes alert. You can talk about sex in church. It's not dirty, okay? God God made it. So just making sure. Some of you are like, he shouldn't be talking about that. Like, no, it's okay. The idea of setting yourself aside for prayer. Here's a question. If that's a commandment that maybe Paul gave for that, of people agreeing to prayer in the marriage relationship, to consecrate themselves and to abstain for that for that only re- for only that reason, then it might be good for us to sit here and say, you know what, if consecration had anything to do, it was probably a time of solemn devotion and praying to Yahweh. It was probably a time of getting your mind right with him. It's probably what this might have been. We don't know, but if we had to use scripture of what we would think of, when else has this ever been commanded? That's the only reason why it's ever given. So, moving on here, because it's starting to get warm. It says here, um, and do not go near a woman, verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now this is difficult. Because we're not able to see this event, because we just read about this instance happening, in a verse, it's really hard to place yourself there and think about what is visually going on. What are the senses experiencing in this moment? Think about it real quick. Look at it. Thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Now we've all right now got some sort of picture in our mind, whether it looks cartoonish or real or whatever, we've got something going on of what we think that might look at. But what I want you to see is the response to everything that's going on, and that is that the people trembled. They're in fear. 
And that's important for you to realize. Whatever is going on on this mountaintop, they're scared now. They weren't. Oh, we're going to meet with the Lord. This could be great. Maybe that was the response. Oh, I've got to get things ready. We're supposed to consecrate ourselves. Hey, we're supposed to be about this and be devoted in this direction. Hey, we got to start washing all of our clothes and be ready for the Lord. And then when his presence begins to show up, anything else that they were thinking about in that moment is gone from their minds because all they can think of is, (gasps) and that's it. Notice 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now here's what's getting ready to take place. is We're getting ready to switch dispensations. A dispensation is an indefinite period of time of which a responsibility has been given to a certain group of people to fulfill. The last dispensation that we saw was the dispensation of promise to Abraham. And the idea is that God is going to fulfill his covenant through Abraham's seed, to see it come to fruition. What is amazing about this is that every dispensation that is ever listed has this one word that needs to be attached to it every time. And it's a more recent word that's come up in the past 20 years when church planting started to explode. But I think it's important that you write it down and think about it. It's the word missional. Missional. M-I-S-S-I-O-N-A-L. Just mission with an A-L at the end. And here's what it is. In every dispensation, God's desire is to so affect people as to where they become reachers of other people. Does that make sense? In other words, God's mission is to reconcile the world to himself. It's the whole reason why Christ died and didn't just die for our sins. It's 1 John 2, 2, the next verse but died for the sins of the entire world. Everybody's sin has been paid for. The middle wall of separation has been destroyed and knocked down. And the only thing that separates pagan people from a holy God is their unbelief in the gospel. That's a problem. Notice it doesn't have to be that way. People need to hear the gospel and believe. What God is getting ready to do in giving this law to Israel is to set up a society that is going to model what it looks like for people to have an intimate fellowship relationship with the creator of all people. A common mistake that people make about the law is that the law was a means to be saved from hell. Does everybody understand that that is not what the law was given for? Keeping the law is never a way to go to heaven, ever. That was never God's intention in giving it. It was never the intention of the Israelites to follow it unto that end. And yet somehow it's become distorted in thinking that that is the acceptance that you get from God that will pass you from death into life. In fact, there's a book that came out not too long ago by a guy named Alan Stanley, not Andy Stanley, Alan Stanley. And it was actually his PhD dissertation from Dallas Theological Seminary. And the question that he's trying to answer in the whole thing, his thesis is, did Jesus teach salvation by works? And his conclusion was, yes. And they graduated him with his PhD. And I'm pretty sure he got an A on the paper. But his whole thing was taking the idea of the law that was given and the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and let's just clip them all together into one big thing, and, well, yeah, of course, you've got to do works to be saved. 
Even smart people miss it. Even smart people miss it. Now here's the way that you know that the law that we're getting ready to read is not about God accepting them. Are they already accepted? How do we know that? How do we know that? God said, so that is the... Get out of here. That's terrible. That's the most generic answer I've ever heard. What? Okay. Okay. Just in previous verses that you read and God said so, they're accepted. How do we know specifically? What did we start with in looking at Exodus? You are my what? Son. Let me ask you a question. Is your son your son regardless if they obey you or not? Yes. Did Israel even have a rule of conduct at that time? None. When they were liberated out of slavery, did they have a rule of conduct at that time? No, that's why God didn't bother to chasten them. He's sitting there looking like, they don't know how to act. Therefore, I can't discipline them. I haven't given them any divine revelation of what I am expecting of them as their father in relationship with them as my son. Therefore, I can't put them in the corner because they disobeyed. They're grumbling and complaining. I can't do it. Now, here's something that's real important to understand, and we're going to elaborate more on this next week. Everybody realized that the historical situation of Israel in slavery, being set free, going out into the wilderness, and coming to the point of this mountain to receive instruction is an actual historical situation that God has displayed in time to communicate your Christianity to you. Does everybody realize this? This is what is called types and antitypes. Israel is a type of Christian. Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel, but Israel is a type of Christian. And what do I mean by that? Were we not all in the bondage of slavery and sin before we knew Jesus, yes? Essentially, Satan was our Pharaoh. He was the God that ruled over us and oppressed us. But God comes in and supplies the sacrifice, and by us applying the blood, we are then set free and death passes over. Everybody got that? The whole idea of believing in Jesus is the fact that the blood, the provision needed to be set free, has already been freely given to you and fully given to you, and it is completely sufficient if you will apply it. How do you apply the sacrifice that's been given to you? By faith. By faith, it is like you putting the blood on your doorpost so that death will pass over. What happens at that moment? You are transferred from death into life. I love John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Does that say anything about you being obedient Christian? Not at all. It tells you how to be saved. So notice, Israel is set free from this bondage and liberated. The blood has been applied and God sets them free. And they plunder the Egyptians, all their gold and silver and everything, when they walk out of there. That means that they walk out in abundance. Do you realize that you are lacking nothing in Christ? As a Christian, you are lacking nothing. Ephesians 1.3, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You lack nothing at all. Why? Because everything you have that's worth anything in God's eyes, Christ gave to you freely. That's important. So now, 
that they're coming out here, they're getting ready to receive instruction. What is this? This is essentially what we call discipleship. You ever have baby Christians, brand new born again believers that are still doing fleshly worldly things? Yes? Don't smack them around. Don't complain and grumble about them. Don't condemn them. Why? They don't know. All they've ever known is the world. And Israel is the picture of that. Notice the grace of God in this. They don't know how to act. Anybody beat your kids when they're three months old? No, this baby won't stop wetting himself. Good grief. Anybody do that? No, that's called child abuse. And too often Christianity is guilty of child abuse. Why? Because believers have not grown in their relationship with Christ and received instruction so that they can employ it and start living the abundant life in the here and now. This Exodus experience is a model of this completely. That's so important for us to get. So now we come to chapter 20, verse 1. This is what is known more properly as the ten words or it's also called the decalogue is another name for it chapter 20 verse 1 then god spoke all these words don't miss it then god spoke this isn't moses this isn't god talking to moses so that moses can talk to the elders so that the elders can talk to the people so the people can answer and talk to the elders and the elders can talk to moses and moses can come back to yahweh that's not what this is this is yahweh cutting out the leadership manifesting a presence of himself upon this mountain and he is going to actually audibly speak to them Brittany, is my loud voice messing with your baby okay just making sure they're over there and both of their eyes are huge. It's like, good Lord, <laughs> kids are getting saved. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Chapter 20, verse 2. Notice how he starts this. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, or more literally put the house of of slaves. How does he start this whole thing? The very first thing that Yahweh wants to tell them, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Everybody see how this relates to what we saw in chapter 15 and it lays the foundation for why he should be worshiped. Does that make sense? Let's put this in a different context and think about what do you think would have happened to the children of Israel if they would have stayed in slavery? What would have happened to them? We think probably would have died out eventually they would have got caught up in greater idolatry they would have been assimilated into egyptian culture right a lot of crossbreeding going on what would have happened with the promise of the messiah gone interesting so notice god's doing far more than maybe what we would just think about on the surface and he's reaching in and he's doing this mass extraction out of a cancerous central place in order to set these people in a position of health before him. This is who he is. And what's interesting is, is this right here, this, this pronunciation in verse 2 is what is known as a hesed relationship. Anybody remember what the word hesed means? Hesed? I told you last week I hate that the New King James has translated it mercy. It's a word that means loving kindness in your Bibles. 
is the idea, or the loyal love of God. This being a Hesed relationship that he's bringing forward in verse 2 is the idea of because of the great loyalty that has been shown to you in the midst of Egypt and its oppression, I am now calling on you to be loyal to me now that you've been set free. That's the idea that's going on here. So verse 3 is commandment number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? What was Egypt full of? Gods. Not just idols, but gods. Demons were running the show. Fallen deity was in control. They were ruling unjustly. They were oppressing the poor. They cared nothing about righteousness, even as we see in the Psalms, Psalm 82, Yahweh calls them to recorrect how they're handling their responsibility amongst the nations. Nope, we're leaving everybody into corruption. That's where they are. So notice, no other gods, nothing else. This doesn't mean that no other gods exist. What he's communicating here is there is no God like Yahweh because he alone is the creator. Everything else is the creation. He moves on here. Verse 4 is connected with it. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or the water under the earth. No idol, no likeness. And notice that he gives you three areas of existence. Don't miss this. You won't hear this in your science class. Okay, this is important. He gives you heaven above, the earth beneath, or the water where? Under the earth. Notice it doesn't say the water on the earth. Everybody see that? You want an interesting Bible study? Research about what's going on underneath the earth. Interesting Bible study. Put that in there. Maybe you write it down. Do it in your devotions. Excellent. Please do that. But notice, no gods, no idols, no objects. You are to have nothing that symbolizes or seeks to capture any likeness whatsoever of which you are to give your devotion to. The mistake has been made that somehow Yahweh, if you're even trying to be devoted to that or to him, can somehow be captured by putting the most skilled artist on earth that you know into a situation to where they can encapsulate him in some image or form. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. But yet people try it. People have run that to the hilt. People have tried to give us some image to grasp onto. You might be like me. For the longest time, when I think about God, pictures of Gandalf from Lord of the Rings come in my mind. Right? He's kind of got this long, gray, flowing robe, or maybe the white Gandalf robe. I don't know, big, long, flowing beard and the pointy hat at the top. And it's almost like Merlin on steroids. I don't know. But it's this idea of what can I get in my mind to help me think about who God is. Notice that God is saying, no, remove all objects from your worship. I am not to be pictured in any way except by how I reveal it to you. And when I reveal it to you, don't try to make a replica. It won't suffice. Notice he says here, verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh your Elohim, am a jealous God. Let's stop there. This verse right here is the verse that sent Oprah Winfrey off the deep end. She was sitting in church one day and somebody read that God was a jealous God and she sat there and thought, well, God must not be much of a God if he's jealous of me. 
And then she went and hung out with this Eckhart Tolle guy that, I don't know, he looks like a, a Muppet. I don't know. It's kind of weird. But anyway, got in with him. Hey, he's a false teacher. I don't care what you say. He is. He's a pagan false teacher that's demonic. And he's got this whole new earth or something that he had that was a bestseller because all of a sudden Oprah had finally found the answer and she led all these people straight. And of course, she gave out free copies, everybody in her audience and all that kind of stuff. Heresy. Heresy. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? Is he envious because your devotion might be with somebody else? He's defensive of his people. You think God gets upset when something else takes priority in our lives? Absolutely. Is that wrong for him to do so? If he's jealous, can he be jealous and righteous at the same time? Yeah, when we get jealous, we get vindictive. We start thinking revenge. We start thinking about blades and cutlery and weird things, right? We get all crazy with it. Maybe I'm telling you too much. (laughs) Or maybe I'm trying to keep you awake. People get crazy about those things. Jealousy roots up a sin in us and pulls us forward. Only God can experience jealousy rightly. Why is that? Because he alone is right. And if his people, Israel being here, were to devote themselves to anything else, they are settling for less than what they could have in this life. Now, let's not act like we don't know what that is. Because anytime you talk to some high school girl that's infatuated with the loser in her science class, you know exactly what I'm talking about. She's settling for so much less than what she could have. Yes, she is, because she's dumb. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? See, some of you laugh because that was you in high school, and we're going to bypass that. But now that you're all grown up and you look back, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's no different from Yahweh's perspective. Why would he ever want his children who he loves, rescues, blesses, provides for, and is set free to experience a life and to have a calling that no one else would ever have for them to walk into this junk and settle for so much less than the best that he freely offers them? You know what it says when we think of it that way? We, we kind of can sit there and for a minute go, wow, sin really is ridiculous. It really is illogical in life to participate in anything like that because God has given us so much more. And to satisfy a temporary lustful craving or infatuation that we may have and diminish my intimacy with the God of the universe, it makes no sense. We start thinking soberly about really what sin means. Now, this has messed everybody up here. He's a jealous God. Notice what it says. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing hesed, loving kindness, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, there's been all kinds of people who said, okay, wait a second, you mean to tell me that if I sin, my great-great-grandkids are still going to be paying for my sin? I'm telling you, no, that's not what it means. That's not the idea here. What it does mean is that your sins have consequences and your sins have the tendency of pouring over into your children even unto the third and fourth generation. It's talking about that sin goes much further than you ever thought it would and has consequences and ramifications much greater than what you ever thought. Anytime that I've ever dealt with somebody who is addicted to pornography, one of the very first things I ever hear out of their mouth is, well, it's not hurting anybody. Is it not? Have you talked with your wife and kids lately? They seem pretty hurt about it. Have you talked about your friends that you won't talk to anymore? They seem pretty hurt about it. Sin goes much further than we ever thought it would be. 
And you don't realize how harmful sin is until you look over on your offspring and go, oh my goodness, I've infected them or led them in a way that I didn't have to do that. With this type of idea here, notice that God is saying, watch for what trickles down your generations. Now, what does it mean, hate and love? Those are always strong words that we deal with. But notice, Yahweh actually says to those who hate me. You can't understand that if you don't grasp the opposite parallel that happens next. Look what it says. But showing, verse 6, loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you realize to love God is to keep his commandments? Everybody know that? Love in the Bible is contingent upon obedience. Did you know that? Oh, I love God. Really? Why are you living with that person? But I love God. We got something you just don't understand. You sure? Why are you being disobedient? You don't love God. You love God like you love a buffet. You want to take all the ribs and stuff, but you want to leave the Brussels sprouts out of it. No, you got to take God as a whole. So what does it mean here? To love God is to keep his commandments. Jesus even said it, John 14, 21. If you love me, and he's talking to his 11 disciples. Judas is already gone. If you love me, you'll do what? What's he say? What? This ain't a speaking in tongues church. Somebody say it. Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey. And what does he promise after that? And if you obey, if you keep my commandments, I will come into you, share my life with you. My father will love you. What beautiful promises of intimacy that is. Notice, obedience to the commandments equals to a love and intimacy with the father. Moving on here. We're running out of time. I'm sorry. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This is not simply using God along with four-letter words. That's not what this means. What this means here is attributing anything to Yahweh that is un-him. Does that make sense? Not his character. When the Pharisees looked at the miracles of Jesus and him healing the withered man's hand on the Sabbath day, they say the works that he does is by the works of the devil. That was the unpardonable sin right there. They had seen the manifestation of God's works in doing good and holy things, and they turned around and they credited, they gave the glory to Satan for what that was, and they defamed the Son of God right there in front of their eyes. There was no coming back from that. And what you find if you read that section in Matthew, it's in chapter 12. After that, nothing was ever the same for Israel. Leaders speak for a nation. And when they don't think about God correctly, they lead their nation astray. It trickles down and down and down. It's not simply what it is. It's using God's name in any way for personal gain, something corrupt, any of that. We have to be much more careful about it than, than just, oh, it's just a cuss word. No, it's not. Chapter or sorry, yeah, chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it what? Set apart. Set apart. Here's what's interesting. Out of the ten words that are given here, the ten commandments that are given here, the Sabbath day is the one that is not repeated in the New Testament for the Christian. Remember, we're talking about a law for Israel and how they live. Which, let's be honest, if we were to back up from all this thing, we should just be in awe that God can run a society off of ten lines and Congress can't do it with a million, okay? So let's, let's just be really excited about that for just a second. 
But this is for Israel, not for the church. But when the commandments are repeated as the law of Christ or the law of liberty or the law of the king, like we see in James chapter two, those types of things of the guidelines of which we are to live by to have fellowship with the father, the Sabbath is not repeated. I've got more in the notes about that. Now look what happens. Verse nine, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. It is a day of secession is what that means. Of Yahweh your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Why is this, God? Notice, you're getting ready to get a commentary on Scripture that clears up a lot of garbage that people believe about creation. Verse 11, For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, and because we're good Bible students, we go, what's that there for, right? Notice, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, a lot of confusion has just been cleaned up by this one passage here. Everybody heard of the day-age theory of creation, that each day is actually thousands of years or an epoch or an age that took place. So how we should understand this, if we're going to be consistent with that thinking in the Bible, is that we are supposed to work, if we were Israelites, for 6,000 years, and then we're supposed to rest for a thousand year that makes the seventh. Does that make any sense? No, not at all. That would never happen in your lifetime. You couldn't get it accomplished. But is God crystal clear here that the day-age theory doesn't hold any water? Absolutely. Just as God created everything in six days and rested, so Israelites work six days and they rest. Scripture interpreting Scripture. That view holds no water. If anybody has a question about it, take them here and say, guess what? God's commenting on his own actions here. Now, here's what's interesting. Those are are commandments one through four. Notice they have everything to do with God. It's everything about how they view God, how they worship God, what their perspective is about him and how they reverence him. Now, you can draw a line across your Bible, which is actually what I did. I drew it across right above chapter uh, 20, verse 12. And starting with commandment number five, verse 12, we now have Israel's relationships with one another. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you. Interesting point about this. Notice as soon as God, and remember, this is God speaking audibly for everyone to hear. As soon as he's done talking about the relationship with himself, notice he immediately deals with the family. The family sets the tone for the culture. That's what he gets. He has put the family together of a mother and father and children because it sets the tone for society. Anybody notice that what Satan tries to attack all the time is the institution of the family? Fatherlessness is an epidemic. Divorce situations, having to support two households that are going on. Children being left by the wayside, having to go into some sort of foster care because the mother was too young to take care of them because it was an unwed pregnancy that happened in high school. Homosexuality running rampant. Everything is an attack against the family. And we're sitting here thinking we need to be tolerant and acceptable and all that. I'm telling you the truth about this. That is all politics that Satan has put in line. I should be okay with the institution of the family being torn apart? No. Well, you're so bigoted. You're so intolerant. Okay. Call us what you will. But I didn't make this rule. 
God did. And God designed it. And God said it can only function in this way. And if it ever tries to function apart from that, it functions apart from Him and His purpose for it. And it will always be less than the best that God designed. Studies are off the charts and nobody wants you to see them. A child is reared best when a mother and a father are in the home. There's no confusion about it. You waving or you got, okay. 76% of high income households have family dysfunction. And the number one thing that determines whether children have dysfunction in their home Mm -hmm. is resources available. Mm -hmm. From an economic standpoint, just from food. Yes. Yes. Everybody hear that? Everybody get that? Good. Let's move on. I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. Okay? If you want to give me the extra hour, I'll take it. Um, You shall not murder. Genesis 9, 6. Right? Anyone that sheds blood of his blood, it will be shed. Why? Because we're created in the image and likeness of God. Now notice that was pre-law. That's before even Israel was a nation. But this would be the idea of the person who steps forward with the first mark to shed blood. Is it wrong to shed blood in war? No. Is it wrong to shed blood because someone is being legally executed for a crime that is committed? No, it's not. Those things are not wrong. Christians were not called to be pacifists in that way. What is wrong? The fact that you've moved forward to take somebody's life like Cain took Abel's without any just cause. Notice, that's a wrong handling of jealousy that drove him in that direction. How about committing adultery? Notice it distorts marriage. It messes up the family. And here's what's interesting about this being part of what God physically, audibly spoke to them so that they could hear it, is that later on, he would constantly use this phrase, you played the harlot with these people. You've committed adultery with these nations. It would serve as you have broken the law that you agreed to keep to have intimacy with me so that you would be a prominent and holy nation. You shall not steal private property, private ownership. There is nothing wrong with capitalism. I'm so tired of everybody talking about socialism and all these Marxist ideas that have been brought in from from everybody graduating from Philosophy 101 of their colleges. That stuff does not work. The Bible advocates capitalism, ownership of private property. If it's yours, keep it. You don't have to share with anybody else. And no, the church in Acts, when they're distributing to everybody as they had need, is not communism in action because they weren't forced to do it. People in their hearts, if they wanted to be gracious, could bring their things and have it distributed to people in need. Completely different idea. Not stealing. It's not yours. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is much more than just lying, the falsehood that it is. It's about defaming somebody's character it's about tearing somebody down it's about gossip it's about the peer pressure junk that you see in high school when some girl is made to feel like dirt because she made a wrong decision it's that type of stuff no 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 none of that and notice that verse 17 is almost a summation of all this you shall not covet your neighbor's house gosh he shouldn't have that i really want that no no the israelites were not to look at their neighbor's porsche it says here You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And then at the end of that, Yahweh is silent. He stops talking. He lets it set. And now you have the opportunity to watch the children of Israel respond. Imagine you're there and all of a sudden God's voice, and we don't know what it was like. We don't have a clue. But we can see the response to get a get a flavor of it. Verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder 
and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. Everybody remember in chapter 19, the warning was don't let them get close to the mountain. You ain't got to worry about that because he was. everybody was just like, right? We're getting away from this thing. Scared to death. And they're trembling. You ever been so scared that you tremble? We talk about your knees knocking like everybody gets Barney Fife all of a sudden or something like that. You ever been so scared that that happens? Notice verse 19. Then they said to Moses, here's their response. Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Or let's think of it this way. Moses, from now on, if God's got something to say, find out what it is and you let us know. Because we all believe, notice this, it's a solid conviction. We all believe that if God ever talks to us again, it will kill us. We don't know what it sounded like. But to invoke this type of response, it left a mark. And it was supposed to. Now, Moses says something that frustrates me to no end to these people. And it's just like every time an angel pops up. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. And all God's people said, come on, man. Did you not just see what happened? And, you know, I don't know if Moses was like, I talk to him all the time. (laughs) We hang out, you know, we go see movies together. I don't know. But notice, don't be afraid. But I want to show you something interesting. Everybody see the word afraid? Keep it in your mind. Do not be afraid for, here's the reason why. God has come, here's the reason. Don't miss it. In order to what? Test you. The Israelites are going to be tested I've given you a rule to live by. Will you live by it? Will you fulfill the potential that I have made it possible for you to do by living in holiness with me? Now watch this. To test you and, not just that, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, here's the reason, so that you may not sin. Does everybody see there's a difference from being afraid and fearing the Lord? Does everybody see that? Don't be afraid, but fear him. And fear him unto one solid reason alone. So that you don't sin. Everybody got your notes? Turn to the very end. I found a really great quote I want to share with you. I apologize. I didn't get to share with you everything I wanted to. I found this. National Geographic from June 2017, Why We Lie. I love it. I get to read about pagans talking about why we lie. Good stuff. I'll share this with you next week, though. I definitely want to. It's very interesting to see a pagan mindset about these types of truths that are set forward. Let's read the last quote down there at the bottom. I want to read it to you. It was was an altogether good thing that the people were terrified of God. Their reaction indicated that they would be afraid of offending him through sin. And thus their fear would function as a discipline to keep them from sin. This is in fact always the value of the much encouraged fear of God in Scripture. Being afraid of the consequences of disobeying God is among the most helpful attitudes any believer can possibly have. Those who try to suggest that the various commands to fear God are merely encouragements to hold him in some sort of honor or awe completely miss the point that fear is beneficial a beneficial guiding mechanism for human 
behavior. Now here's the thing. The church is not Israel, and I want to keep that extremely clear. So these aren't our laws that were given to us to live by. They're not, and that's what I'm going to talk about next week, is that the church is not under the law, so how do we relate to it? But I do want to tell you this. Taking away a secondary application from this, do you fear God today, right now? When you were hustling and bustling, trying to get all the kids in the car and everybody's running late and you can't find your shoe, was that you this morning? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Do we fear God? Or let me ask it to you this way with the idea of the fear of God, because I think it's important for us to reflect upon these things. Is it easy for you to sin? Let's look at it that way. Because the fear of God, realizing who He is, realizing what He can do, realizing the graciousness of what He has done to give you a life unlike what you would have had apart from His Son, and then thinking about the concept of sin, we should all of a sudden become very unnerved if we're so easy to just fall into. Yeah, my language got like this. Yeah, my thought life got in this way. Well, yeah, I started thinking about this. I was talking bad about that person. Well, And sin just becomes kind of like, well, it's a common occurrence. It's just acceptable. Yeah, my Christianity is mediocre, and that's just what it is. I hope you guys realize Jesus has made it possible for us not to have to live that way. But I will tell you the culprits that cause it. Number one, it's because we're not in the Word daily. We're not in the Word daily. We breathe daily, we eat daily, we sleep daily. But, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the living God. Do we really believe that? Because if we do, the Word every day, surrounding ourselves with it every day, saturated Every day, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Everybody see how scripturally it's paramount to existence? Do we live like that? Because I tell you this, it's a lot harder to sin when truth is all that you see. Let that hang on to you. Let's pray. Father, when we look at your holiness being unfolded for Israel, of what it is to live in this relationship with you, we may have difficulties in relating. But I pray, God, that the response to your word would be the same as theirs, that we would be in fear of you not scared to death out of our minds, but realizing just how horrible sin is and our willful participation in it is completely foreign to everything that you have in store for us. So Father, I pray that be a healthy embrace that we have of that truth. That we realize Jesus loves us so much. He died for us. Because he doesn't want us to continue in those things. He doesn't want us to experience the second death. 
an eternal forever separation from you. God, what a horrible existence that is. So Father, humble us. Help us appreciate that salvation. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.